Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey y'all, I'm Otis Pickett, the University Historian at Clemson University and a man of faith based here in Clemson, South Carolina. Welcome to Purpose That Prevails, a podcast about faith, religion, and walking a faith-based life. On the show, we're going to be joined by both believers and scholars, leaders in the fields of education, history, and religion. My hope is that you find these conversations inspiring, and maybe you and I will even learn a thing or two along the way. Before I introduce my guest for this week's episode, I'd ask that you subscribe, rate, and even review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you've stumbled upon the show. Please also tell your friends, family, and pastors about it as we'd love to get support and get the word out. Okay, now to my guest for this week. It's an honor to have Dr. Robbie Jones on today's show. Robbie is a religious scholar and award-winning author whose articles on religion, politics, and culture are featured in Time Magazine, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and other major media outlets. Robbie is also the founder of the Public Religion Research Institute. In his book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, won the 2021 American Book Award. Robbie is a graduate of Mississippi College, where I taught for 10 years, Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary, and did his PhD in religion at Emory University. We're excited to have Robbie on the show today to share his viewpoints on the current state of white supremacy in American Christianity, the hidden roots of white supremacy in American history, and how the changing demographics of the U.S. is helping diminish the power of white supremacy in our nation. Please welcome Dr. Robbie Jones. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Purpose That Prevails with Dr. Otis Pickett. I'm here with Dr. Robbie Jones, founder of the Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI. And Dr. Jones and I have been doing some work down in New Orleans together, uh, been on a panel together, and both spent some time in Mississippi. And Dr. Jones has been doing amazing work for years on issues of race and religion in the South, and we're really super excited to have him here today. Welcome, Dr. Jones, to Purpose That Prevails. Thanks, Otis. I'm really glad to be here. Glad to be with you again. Awesome. Well, we kind of usually just start our podcast Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us something that's not connected to either your work as a public intellectual or your work as a researcher, but or theologian. But you're just what are the kind of the cool hobbies or things you're into? Oh yeah, um, well um, one is fairly new. Um, it's a pandemic uh, pickup, uh, and uh, I, I began. Uh, riding my bike, right, which I hadn't done since I was a kid, but huh. began cycling seriously, um, just as the world felt like it was shrinking, you know, down uh, into little this little orbit, we were all kind of locked down. Um, and I've put, I think, about 3,000 miles on my bike um, uh, since the pandemic. Uh, so okay. that's been kind of life-changing and, um, and, and really helped, I think, just not only with my physical health, but just my mental health, right, mm. kind of getting out uh, I didn't really mean to do this. But I, I've got a, a giant hybrid bike, but um, I no, I didn't notice till like a few weeks in that on the a little crossbar is the word escape. Um, <laughs> it's kind of it's just the model of the bike, but it, I, I like oh I love this. That's I'm great. It's exactly exactly right. That's exactly. Good. Are you in like a bike? community do you bike with others or i'm not i got a couple of buddies you know we've done some uh there's some great kind of uh uh there's the cno canal path um outside of you can pick up at georgetown and kind of 
go 180 miles, and then it connects up to the Great Allegheny Passage. Awesome. Um, so we've actually done that trek from D.C. to Pittsburgh um, in two, two, it's like 300 miles. We did it in two different uh, uh, things. But um, uh, So there's a few buddies of mine that have done those kinds of rides together, which has been great. That's great. Man, that's awesome. Well, so this is a podcast where, where people of faith, people on a faith journey, um, who are also sort of engaged in issues of race, as you know. Um, so I was wondering if you could just share what we used to say in the 90s, early 2000s, or we're still saying in many contexts. Can you share with us your testimony, your story of coming to faith? All right. I get to testify. Um, great. <laughs> Testimonial time. No, so, you know, well, I'll say I grew up Southern Baptist in Jackson, Mississippi, so this is, uh, you know, native language uh, to me and um, uh, not anything that it is uh, all that foreign. Um, but, you know, I say that um, you use the word journey, you know, in your thing there. I think that's exactly right. It's a kind of how I would describe, uh, particularly the last 10 years or so, um, I, I feel like I have been on quite a journey really to reckon with. Um, this legacy of white supremacy and the way it's kind of insidiously, you know, uh, kind of just entangled itself um, in into uh, our faith, um, oh. institutionally, in terms of liturgy, in terms of hymns, uh, which parts of the Bible get preached, which one, which parts don't, um, you know, and and just the way that Christian institutions have behaved, oh. um, you know, in the social context as well. So. Yeah, I really, uh, this is the third, you know, new, I have a new book, right? And, the, and this is the third book I've written on this topic. And mm. it really is because I'm, I'm still wrestling it to the ground, you know, mm. um, trying to figure out like, you know, wrestling where Jacob. does this commitment to, yeah, where does this commitment to, <laughs> you know, white supremacy end and my faith begin? Yeah. So, you know, why, we, we, we kind of hear the term white supremacy. We hear it a lot. And in my interactions with, folks in the church, as I kind of talk about this term, is the association of white supremacists with neo-Nazis and the KKK. And folks often in the church have a hard time kind of wrapping their minds around the idea of like, I may be involved in a white supremacist institution. Could you share with us just sort of a working definition yeah. of that, that folks can kind of wrap, use to like wrap their minds around what you're talking about? No, that's right. I mean, you know, I, I, because I've been writing in this space, um, I no longer trip over that word, mm. um, white supremacy. But uh, but earlier in my life, I certainly would have. And um, before I really began this journey, um, you know, I, what, one thing I found really helpful is um, an African American scholar named Eddie Gloud um, uh, has a great section uh, on a book in a, in a book called Democracy in Black, where he talks about this term and. You know, he does this ingenious thing where he just flips it around, right? And so instead of white supremacy, which, yes, we associate with, or the immediate association is maybe this old black and white photograph of people dressed in sheets and burning mm. a cross, and it's faded and wrinkled, and it's very distanced from us, right? Mm. And that's one of the comforting, as awful as that picture may be, it's comforting in a indirect way because we can distance ourselves yeah, from, from that. Right. Most of us can distance ourselves uh, from that. Um uh, but but something that brings it much closer to home, I think, is this, uh, if you just flip around white supremacy and we talk about the supremacy of white people, right? Mm. And and that gets much closer to home. Uh, so, for example, even in my lifetime, uh, I'm 55. I was born in 1968. Um, the, the public schools in Jackson, Mississippi, 
weren't desegregated until I was in third grade. Hmm. Right. And so and the reason for that, right, is we held the best schools, the best textbooks and the best teachers for white students. And so that's a, a very basic, plain commitment, right, to our lives being uh, worth more than other lives. And so hmm. I, I think when we put it that way, the entire Jim Crow South and segregation project was exactly about that. Libraries, schools, the best neighborhoods, all of these things being reserved for whites. And, and you know, that is a straightforward and very concrete way of saying we deserve better. Um, and, and we believe that we deserve better. And we're going to actually organize society unapologetically um, in that way. And so I, I think when we see that, it brings it much closer to home and something that I think we're all still, you know, dealing with. Yeah, that really helps. And, you know, um, as our listeners are trying to, like, process, like, where does this hit home with the church? The church being people. It's people, right, who are out in the communities helping to build these institutions. And certainly that mindset wouldn't have stopped at the church door, right, on Sunday, that you have, you know, the work about, you know, Mississippi praying by Carolyn Renee DuPont, where, you know, white deacons are standing at the door preventing African-Americans from coming in the church building. Uh, You also have situations where, you know, there's this belief that African-Americans are inferior among whites in, in, in the U.S. South and in the country. And so you're, if that's your belief, in any way they're inferior and you're building institutions around you with that undergirding mentality, that's going to creep into the church, don't you think? I mean, that's... Well, it not only crept into the church, it was coming from within the church. Coming from I mean, within the church. I think the that's church. the thing we really have to face is that it wasn't that the church was some pure place where these outside forces were right. coming in, right? I mean, it was from within the church. And in fact, one of the, the best testimonies to that is um, in the South during the civil rights movement, um, one of the key thing you brought up, um, this great book, uh, Mississippi Praying, um, uh, is fantastic book. Um, and, and you know, one of the things that's so clear there is that um, the civil rights organizers realized that um, the, the sort of cornerstone upholding uh, the kind of respectability of mm. white supremacy and segregation was the church. Yeah. And that if they could integrate the church, everything else would fall. Mm. Uh, and in fact, um, in, in you know, my hometown of, of Jackson, um, Medgar Evers, civil rights worker who was sh- gunned down in his driveway nine miles from my driveway um, in, in Jackson, um, was gunned down because the last thing he tried to do was integrate the downtown white churches in Jackson. That, that was the last campaign he was working on, mm. and he was killed for it. Mm. And he was killed by a white Episcopalian uh, from the Delta mm. um, who came down and who had been writing for years in the Delta op-ed sections of the papers uh, that he would do exactly this, that if any black people tried to step inside of his church, uh, he would meet them on the, on the steps with a gun. Mm. Um, so, And this was very widespread, and again, just to make it very personal, um, you know, I, I, through talking with my own my own parents, um, something I didn't know is that um, in 1963, um, in the same years that these churches were trying to be integrated in in uh, in Macon or in Jackson, my grandfather in Macon, Georgia, um, was a deacon um, in East Macon Baptist Church, and one of his official duties on Sunday morning was to stand on the steps and make sure that only white people entered the sanctuary. Mm. So this wasn't a like wink wink nod nod. 
right. kind of thing. It was it was an official role of a deacon, right, uh, in, in the Baptist church in those days. And so mm. I think we try to brush all that under the rug, but I mean, it was this very, um, you know, commitment. And and King, um, I, I you know, the, the phrase about the inside of churches that um, we're, we're about to, you know, um, come on the anniversary of the March on Washington and everybody, all white churches, I think, you know, if, if they're going to quote anything from King, it's from that I have a dream speech. Um, and I think if I could make one recommendation, it would be that all white churches stop quoting uh, from I have a dream and only quote from letter from Birmingham jail white moderate. Um, on Martin Luther King Day, yeah, yeah. right, where he's condemning the yeah. silent stand- moderates. And he has this line in there where he says, I'll stop here, but he, he has this line where he says, um, you know, his, his he's just, yeah condemning the people sitting on the sidelines and he describes them is sitting safely behind the anesthetizing power of stained glass windows, right? That's his description mm. of white churches. Uh, when the call of justice and racial equality was being uh, sounded, you know, all around them, um, that there was just this conspiracy of silence mm. at best uh, and outright resistance at worst. Man. Please don't stop, Robbie. <laughs> Please keep going. Um, so, uh, but my next my next thing I kind of wanted to talk about was you you mentioned growing up in Jackson, um, yeah. and um, I just came from a career I spent fifteen years in Mississippi and have come here to South Carolina and uh, was at an institution that we both have an affiliation with in in Clinton, Mississippi, called Mississippi College which is a Baptist-affiliated university in Mississippi. And um, I remember you, when I was, I think it was my first or second year as a professor, you came and spoke in the chapel. And it was incredibly, if you'll recall, this contentious discussion, right? Because it was one of the first times, I think this is 2014 or 2015, the university had hosted someone. Yeah, 2016. Someone, 2016. Yeah. The university yeah. had hosted someone to come and say, like, hey, we're part of the problem here. And, you know, my colleagues began to, like, research the president of Mississippi College who's arguing from biblical text about segregation in the 1950s. And we found, you know, Ross Barnett is a graduate of Mississippi College. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. right, we found a lot of the deacons at Mississippi, you know, Mississippi Baptist churches are coming from Mississippi. So tell me about that. Tell me what was it like kind of being there as a student? And your engagement with these issues and what you saw at Mississippi College as a student and kind of what you're what you were attempting to do with that talk or what you want to do there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to confess here, and this is back to the journey metaphor. Um, I mean, I was mostly oblivious to these issues as a student uh, at Mississippi College. You know, it felt largely like an extension of my all white local church in Southwest mm-hmm. Jackson um, when I was there. Um you know, there were very few African-American students, um, uh, and, and most of the ones who were there were affiliated with the athletic program, uh, and not a lot of mixing, really. Um, right. uh, like, the, like the men's social clubs, uh, almost entirely white, um, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, so, and and I, I have to say, like, painfully, you know, that I was really oblivious mm. uh, to these issues. It wasn't until much later... Um, that, that these things really started. It was really seminary. Um, after I left and went to, I went to Southern Baptist Seminary, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, and I, I finally had a, a professor, um, Leon Macbeth, who's a, a Baptist history professor, and actually one of the first who was willing to just say, look, 
there's no getting around it. The genesis story of the Southern Baptist Convention is that it, it was begun primarily uh, to provide a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ was compatible with chattel slavery uh, based on the color of someone's skin. Like mm. That's the founding story in 1845 of the Southern Baptist Convention. And that word Southern doesn't just mean a compass point. It means Confederate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is, that's what that blossomed into was mm. uh, the Confederacy. Um, and, and so I think getting that was sort of like, I think the opening of the aperture, you know, for me was, was there. And I, you know, and, and honestly, my first reaction was anger um, because I had been that kid. I was at church, you know, five days a week growing up. I was there all through, during my teen years and I had never had a pastor. I'd never had a Sunday school teacher tell me the truth hmm. about our own denomination, including the fact I'd gone to like this thing we used to call training union, which is all about the history of Baptists, right? And so even getting a history, you know, supposedly a history mm. of who we are and, you know, all that stuff, uh, it never, uh, no one ever told me the truth about this. And so I think that was sort of like a, at least a beginning of a first step of thinking, okay, there may be more of the story here. And, and just this kind of seed was planted that, you know, ah, like if I've got a, if I really want a faith with integrity, I'm, I'm going to have to get to the bottom of this. Hmm. And, you know, it's really interesting. It's colleagues in my department in 2015, 2016, 2017, who are really teasing out these issues and writing about these issues. So it's really not until the mid-20-teens mm-hmm. that you really see yeah. the institution beginning to wrestle. And then the Southern Baptist Seminary produces its report, I want to say 2018 or 2019, its historical yeah. report. And and then that work sort of is continuing. So it's really, really a very modern in, in terms of the last few years that institutions are beginning to grapple with this and wrestle with this. And what does that mean for like African-American students and others coming to those spaces that are predominantly white, but then in spaces that have never attempted to really wrestle historically with these issues. And so um, just want to thank you for your work. And, and, and this book, you know, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, you know, it's a 2021 American Book Award winner. And your research on this topic has just contributed so much to our understanding of our earlier conversation. Did you find in your research uh, much with regard to were there American evangelicals who attempt to who attempted to push back, who attempted to become less moderate, who attempted to work towards any kind of racial healing, or is it pretty much comprehensively the white church completely committing itself to white supremacy? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are, of course, you know, these um, minority voices. Um, one of the things I, I appreciated, um, uh, in, in, so in Jackson, uh, there is a relatively new uh, civil rights museum yes. um, in Jackson. It's actually funded by the state of Mississippi. Yeah. And I've got to confess that when I first went to visit, right after I went the month it opened, um, and I was highly skeptical, hmm. uh, given that it had been funded by state dollars of yeah. the kind of story it would tell. And um, I, I was so impressed uh, hmm. when I was there that it didn't pull any punches. It told the the truth. And, it, and one of the things that they, they do there is they actually... Um, both tell the story, you know, of some uh, dissenting voices that did stand up 
but the truth of the matter is that most of those, uh, pa- if they were pastors, they lost their jobs. Lost their jobs. Uh, so they were they were definitely against the current, right? And so, and the churches wouldn't abide it, mm-hmm. uh, right? Um, and the, the most dominant expression, uh, certainly in Mississippi context, is First Baptist of Jackson um, mm-hmm. uh, with this uh, clergy named Douglas Hudgens, um, who, after Ross Barnett, um, ran this like, openly segregationist platform that was that was the biggest plank in his platform was mm-hmm, segregation mm-hmm. Um, segregation when, now when he, segregation forever right yeah that and, was his and, and rally wins, cry. yeah yeah and, and when he wins uh what does first baptist jackson do is that they hold a special sanctification service hmm. uh for, for ross barnett where they present him with this ornate pulpit bible you know, and lay hands on him and bless, bless his, you know, governorship. Uh, there's not a word about racism, bigotry, um, any of it, right? It's just a wholesale blessing hmm. um, of this just rabidly racist white supremacist campaign. So I, I think that's a good measure of kind of where we have come from and, you know, and how far it is we, the journey is that we have to take. Yeah, I, I that, that museum really is absolutely incredible. And while the state did fund it and did a great job funding it, a lot of the exhibits were local historians, local people that made yeah, sure that's right. yeah. the stories were going to get told in the archives. And my understanding is that they're very, very much understaffed, that, that there's a lot more people they need <laughs> to yeah, keep that museum going and to keep to make sure we're continuing to tell that story. But um, what's amazing is that it's brought a lot of folks to Mississippi to think about studying the civil rights movement. Mm. And it's been, mm-hmm. right, a tremendous impact. So I want to encourage our audience to go see it. So you write another uh, award-winning book, The End of White Christian America, which, won, which wins the 2019 Meyer Award in Religion. Can you tell us a little bit about this book and sort of anything, is the church ending? Is there anything we can do to keep it from ending? Mm. Yeah, no, thanks for that. I, you know, it's it's interesting that like in retrospect, um, you know, that was two books ago now um, that it this has turned into kind of an unwitting trilogy. Um, you know, I wish I could say that I had this master plan, uh, you know, to first write The End of White Christian America, then write a book called White Too Long, and then write a book uh, called The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy. But it really has been putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, but that 2016 book, um, The End of White Christian America, was really my attempt to get at um, the demographic changes in the country and what they meant um, mm. for American culture and politics, right? So not just to describe them, um, uh, but, you know, the Census Bureau is actually barred by law for measuring religion. Mm. Uh, so we get race, we get income, education, a bunch of other things, but we don't get religion uh, from them. So I, I wanted to kind of take a deep dive and look at what's been going on, and particularly because I noticed that we had actually passed quite a significant milestone in the country's history, and that is that's really just been the last 20 years that we have moved from being a majority white Christian country to one that is no longer a majority white Christian country. So if you take all white Christians, Catholic, Protestant, non-denominational, et cetera, um, and you just go back to 2008, um, uh, th- that number is 54%. So the country is comfortably majority white and Christian, 54%. Uh, by the end of Barack Obama's turn, term, that number has dropped to 47%. Uh, percent. That number today is 42%, uh, percent, right? So we've gone from 54 to 42 just in the last under 20 years. Mm. Really, that's quite a big drop in demographic terms um, mm. 
here. Um, and, and so and I think the reason why it's significant is because there has been this mythology, right, of the country as a kind of European Christian country. That's who the country has been for in that um, way of seeing our history. And so this, there's now a, um, a demographic reality uh, wow. that has kind of, you know, uh, hit us. Uh, that and and by the way, that happens. Uh, this sea change happens during uh, the tenure of our first black president, right, yeah, Barack right. Obama. So we've got this symbolic uh, expression of change in the White House uh, while we've got this demographic sea change happening. And I do think that sets off this visceral reaction of that's reactionary, it's angry, it's scared, it's desperate um, that has shaped so much of our politics um, since. Mm. Uh, since that time. So that's really what that book was about. It's just trying to describe the demographic realities that I think have given such energy um, and, and made our, our, our current politics so fraught. Mm. All right. So you mentioned a trilogy, <laughs> an unintended trilogy. So there's a third book, yeah. The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, this one's Brand new, um, uh, you know, now available, but, but brand new. Um, and it really is, again, you know, I'm going to go back to this journey metaphor. It really is my continued efforts at tracing the problem as far back as I can trace it. So this one goes much further back um, in history because I, I wanted to get a, a real handle on where does this idea, you know, that America is a kind of promised land for European Christians. Like that that's who the country is, that's who the country is for. Where does this idea come from? And, and it turns out that it, it's quite old. And in fact, it's part of the Christianity um, uh, that lands on these shores. So it predates America, right? Or the United States as, as we know it. Um, and, and it goes back to um, a set of 15th century church doctrines. Um, and, and, and so what happened was, of course, this was the period where Europeans were first encountering uh, indigenous peoples um, in the Americas. And it was a shock to the system, right? Uh, the, that, that an entire landmass uh, existed that people didn't know existed, entire people groups existed uh, that were hitherto unknown. Um, and so it sets off this, um, so what's, what is our relationship uh, to these people? What's our responsibility to these people? Um, and uh, of course there's a, a rush for land grab and uh, to control the economic resources of these places. And who do they look to, uh, to for a kind of moral guidance on this question? They look to the church. It's the closest thing to international law that exists in the 15th century. Um, you know, this is before the Protestant Catholic split, uh, right? So all of Western Europe is really under the Pope in Rome. And so that's who they appeal to. And the Pope, uh, several popes actually issue documents over a period of 50 years in the late 15th century um, the last one, notably, is in 1493, um, the year after Columbus comes back uh, from his voyage in 1492. And he's asking for moral justification, essentially to go back with more soldiers and more missionaries um, and conquer uh, mm -hmm. the place and claim it uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the name of, uh, you know, of, the Europe, of Spain. Um, and the Pope grants exactly that. And these documents are just brutal um, when you read them. And, and they're, they're up on a website uh, uh, independent website called doctrineofdiscovery.org is what they became known as the Doctrine of Discovery. Um, but one of them in particular, um, you know, has this language about, you know, yes, you have permission. If, and and the, the key was if, if these people were not Christian, 
that was the defining characteristic of whether they had human rights hmm. that needed to be respected or not. Hmm. If they were not Christian, they were categorized as enemies of Christ. And as enemies of Christ, they had no human rights, not to their property, not to their lives, not to their land. Um, and, and there was just a wholesale blessing and, and uh, you know, to conquer, take all their possessions, and then this phrase, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. So this is from the pen of the head of the entire European Christian church that sets in motion uh, the entire colonial enterprise, the transatlantic slave trade, the genocide of Native Americans, it is rooted in a Christian theological doctrine. And the Protestant Reformation doesn't really do a whole lot to push back against that. Right. <laughs> right? No, no, no. I mean, that, the, the Protestant exactly right. Reformation is, is, in a lot of ways, continuing to sanction the institution of slavery as we move into the 17th and 18th centuries. And so, I mean, man, the, the long reach of the church in North America is very strong. That's that's amazing. You take it back to that. I've not seen those documents by the Pope in 1493. That's awesome. That's really amazing that you found that. And so the book kind of walks you up through from that time period up to the modern era. That's right. And, you know, and one of the things we see there that I, that I hope the book is doing, is, you know, there's been a lot of work, particularly since the Black Lives Matter movement over the last half dozen years, hmm. to reckon with the fraught relationship between black and white Americans, right? right and the right. churches and many churches have been part of those conversations. Um, there's not been a lot of work to reckon with um, Europeans' relationship to Native Americans. Mm. There's been much, much less work mm. uh, there. And so what I'm trying to do in the new book is actually hold these histories together, right? And, and so, yes, we ought to continue this work um, uh, around a reckoning uh, with the relationship between black and white Americans. But behind that, Right is a whole set of relationships uh, and violence, uh, really, that was wielded by um, white Christian Americans against the original inhabitants of the land, mm. um, and and in many places uh, it was so complete, you know, that the only remnants of that are place names on a map. Mm. Uh, that that the, the people who lived there were either killed or forcibly removed mm. uh, by by national policy um, and military might, uh, and and so you know I'm kind of challenging people to kind of think about these things together because. Um, I think it's tempting for us, as big as this problem is, to, for white people to think, oh, okay, yes, we had a particular problem with enslaving black people, right, and keeping black people down and subjugated through segregation. That's our particular problem. That's our original sin. But it actually goes back much deeper than that, right? That was a symptom, actually, of a much deeper theological problem uh, that, that also played out um, in our relationships with indigenous people. And it's only when we see that, oh, it's not just this black-white problem. Um, it's, and, and, you know, it's, you know, white Christian people historically have talked about these things as the quote-unquote Negro problem or the quote-unquote Indian problem. But what I'm kind of arguing here is that if we really want to understand this, um, you know, the more honest thing to say is that we've got a white Christian problem huh. here um, huh. that we have to deal with. Huh. Wow. Um, so you formed the Public Religion Research Institute in 2009. Is that correct, 2009? That's correct, yep. Um, tell us what led you to do that, to form that. Tell us a little bit about your mission, and what are some long-term goals you hope to see sort of come out of PRI's work? Oh, great, yeah. Um, so we're a nonpartisan, nonprofit, uh, independent research organization that conducts 
uh, research at the intersection of religion, culture, and politics. Um, and so our mission really is to help journalists uh, and the public to better understand American attitudes um, at, at that intersection, again, of religion, culture, and politics. So we can we interview 100,000 people a year or so, um, and um, you know, eight to 10 public opinion surveys, depending on the year. Um, and we make everything open source. Uh, so we're uh, every year releasing data sets into the public domain for scholars to do secondary research. We're releasing data for reporters to pick up and to write better stories so that when they're writing about what religious Americans think or value, um, they're not just doing anecdotal stories, but they actually have data um, to back it up. Um, and so we, we're doing work um, in a number of areas. Our, our, our big kind of overarching thing is really the theme of religion and renewing democracy. Um, so we're doing a lot around democracy, protecting democracy, uh, challenges to democracy. And then underneath that umbrella, we have a number of other areas of research. Um, one is racial justice and white supremacy, uh, immigration, LGBTQ uh, rights. Uh, we're doing more work around uh, Generation Z and understanding younger Americans as well in climate change. Um, uh, oh, and abortion, abortion and, and reproductive health. Uh, as well. So, you know, in some ways, it's all the things that, you know, you don't want to bring up at Thanksgiving dinner, um, you know, <laughs> or, at, or at a cocktail party. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm a dangerous guest um, at, a, at a cocktail party when people ask me what I do. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the other hand, it is the things that, that the country's divided over and arguing over. Um, and we're trying to provide, you know, the best objective lens we can as to where Americans really are mm. uh, on these issues and where things are changing and where they're where they're not. So, and don't feel like you have to release any new data or anything, but are you seeing any shifts in American evangelical thought from 2016 to 2020, now getting ready to go into 2024? Are you seeing any, any trends or shifts away or just different mm. ways of thinking? I mean, are, is, are we seeing any differences? You know, not a lot. Um, it, it, it's, it's interesting that, that you know, white evangelical Protestants remain outliers on so many issues compared mm. to their fellow Americans. Um, you know, they're one of the few religious groups that have strong majorities opposing, opposing the legality of abortion in all or most cases. Um, they remain uh, one of the few groups uh, that uh, opposes uh, the legalization of same-sex marriage, uh, whereas most of the religious Americans now support that. Um, and, and they remain um, really the only religious group um, uh, that remains steadfastly in support of Donald Trump. Um, you know, so we, I've just done some analysis tracking that. And, you know, when um, Trump got the nomination, you know, back in 2016, uh, his favorability rating among white evangelicals was about 60 percent. Mm. Um, it then went up uh, in the elect. Once he gets elected, it goes up and it stays between 70 and 80 percent throughout mm. his entire presidency. Mm. Um, only after the insurrection on January 6th does it fall a tiny bit, but it falls to 67% favorable, mm. Mm. Um, even after uh, the insurrection. And the, our latest data from mid-year, mid even after two indictments, um, there's now been four, of course, but at, at the time there were two indictments, um, it, it fell to 59%. Uh, so there's been some movement, but it's still, he's essentially in the same place he was in 2016 mm. um, with... Uh, with white evangelical Protestants. And one of the reasons for that is that um, this group has shrunk over mm. this time. So the people who were unhappy 
uh, right, with the wholesale, we're all in for Donald Trump uh, uh, and, and, and uh, the sort of make America great again vision um, have left. Uh, and, and so we have more younger people leaving. Uh, the median age of white evangelicals continues to go up. It's now 56 mm. uh, compared to somewhere in the mid-40s for the country. Uh, so it's a shrinking and graying uh, uh, group. that, And because of that attrition, it's sort of been able to stay about the same place because the dissenters are increasingly leaving the fold. Mm-hmm. And Russell Moore raised a case in point yeah. you know, here, right? Somebody who is in the high echelons and... Uh, you know, and, and ultimately felt he had to leave. Well, Dr. Jones, um, as a person of faith, as a scholar, as someone who's collecting all this data, um, do you have do you have any hope you can leave the audience? Is there is there something you can <laughs> leave us with of your the hope for the impact of your work? Where would you like to see the legacy of your work in in the American landscape? Yeah, I think my hope is, uh, and this is personal, this is not me finger-wagging at anybody else. Um, you know, my hope, and I think what's been driving my own efforts here, um, and, and what I hope for predominantly, you know, white churches and, and white Christians, is for us to be at a, a better place of health. Um, you know, like, I, there's, there's this phrase um, that from James Baldwin that has really stayed with me, where he said that many African-Americans... Um, looked at white people with dismay but, and, and considered us the slightly mad victims of our own brainwashing. Huh. Huh. So we'll let that sink in. The slightly huh. mad victims of our own brainwashing. What he meant by that is that we've had to tell so many lies about our history and about who we are and what we've actually done um, in the country that it's left us uh, in a very unhealthy place, right? Um, as it always does, right? When you when you build an identity around lies, um, and so what I what I hope you know you know to, is for us to take this. Uh, you know, I'm going to quote you some scripture now, right? Um, uh, that you know, Jesus does tell us, right? You will know the truth, and the truth will make you make you free. Huh. And I think we've often thought of that as kind of a platitude, uh, right? But it's a dangerous thing uh, to really tell the truth. Uh, and I think we've got to wrap our heads around the fact that that's not an e- that was not an easy saying of Jesus. It was a dangerous one. Um, it's one that's likely going to get us at odds with our friends and family, uh, maybe even our own churches. Um, but at the end of the day, I think um, to be faithful, we're going to have to get there. And I'll give you one more illustration. Um, you know, before you and I met uh, way back in 2011, um, I had a bout with colon cancer, um, and you know I. You know, as anyone who's had that experience, you never forget getting that diagnosis, right? And what that's like and hearing the word cancer uh, for the first time. Um, But, you know, and then when you hear the treatments, um, you're also in shock, right? Because it's a long, painful journey. Uh, But why do you submit yourself to things like surgery, invasive surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, these kinds of really horrific and painful treatments, um, you do it because you've got your eye on the possibility of health um, at the end of the day, right? And, and living a life free of, of, of disease. And I think that's in many ways where we are, right, mm. as a white church, right? That we're getting this diagnosis and it, it's scary. Mm. Um, and, and, I, and I've been there, I, you know, I've shed plenty of tear over the things I've read about our own history. Uh, it's scary, it's painful. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we're not just going to like 
the point is not to feel bad about it. Uh, the point of that is to find healing and repair uh, from it with, and, and to find that for ourselves and to find it for ourselves in relationship to our black and brown and indigenous brothers and sisters, right? Who we've wronged. Mm. And so to be honest and courageous about that, and then to find some ways to live, I think, forward with more integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's really the goal. Yeah. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for that. I know our audience is going to be really excited to kind of dig into your work. And uh, are there places that you write or speak um, that our audience can access your work that you'd like to share? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, uh, so I, um, you know, well, the book's available. Can I remember books are sold? Audiobook, Kindle, eBooks, all that stuff. Um, but the, um, but I, I'm writing weekly at a, a Substack newsletter, um, so you can get it directly in your inbox, um, and that is at uh, robertpjones.substack.com, mm. or you can get there a little shorter at whitetoolong.net. Um, either of those places will take you to the same place. Uh, there's a free option, there's a paid option, but um, plenty of stuff there for uh, uh, free subscribers as well. Um, I'll be keeping people up to date on the book tour um, uh, throughout the fall uh, and that newsletter in addition to some doing some original uh, writing as well. And does that newsletter include sort of updated information from PRRI or is this your own It research? does, yes, yeah, okay. a little of both. Uh, there's also a separate newsletter for PRI. If you are a data junkie and you want the latest <laughs> uh, public opinion data on religion, culture, and politics, it's at PRRI.org. Yeah. Dr. Jones, um, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a great pleasure. We've learned a lot. Um, we've, got, we've got folks in our audience who are just at different stages of the journey. Uh, some are just starting to kind of understand. Some have been on this journey for a while, some longer, and have gotten off the road. Um, and I think from what I'm hearing from you, the advice is tell the truth and lean into that truth. Uh, but for someone who's been on this journey for quite a while, is there any last pieces of advice you'd offer our audience? Uh, you know, I think let's have the courage to keep looking in the mirror you know, um, I think I feel like that's what a lot of it is, is like not looking away. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, not to feel bad, but I think it's enable- to enable us to take another step toward health. Yeah. Thank you, sir. It means a lot. Thank you for being on Purpose That Prevails today. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Purpose That Prevails. If you've made it this far, I hope this means this conversation was thought provoking and lights your path on this walk of faith we're all on together. A reminder, please spread the word about the show to your church community, your family, your friends. Every bit helps. If you would be so kind to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. It's been a pleasure for me to host the show and spend this time with you. My name is Otis Pickett. Until next time, God bless. Next Chapter Podcasts.